Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, everyone. It is that Williams guy here. Yep, another episode. Uh, we have a, a very special guest with us here tonight. Of course, all of our guests are special, so you should come to expect that by now. Sir, would you introduce yourself to the audience and tell them tell them who you are and what you okay. got here? All right, uh, I'm George Harris. I uh, am the president and CEO of International Firearms Consultants LLC. And uh, I've been in the uh, shooting and training business the, uh, the bulk of my life, I suppose. Uh, I got started at the ripe old age of uh, three when I watched my grandmother shoot a, a squirrel out of a tree with a, what I later found out to be a nickel-plated 22 caliber H&R revolver. And, uh, you know, I thought, man, that, that is good juju. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as I got... Um, along in a few years my one of my uncles gave me a slingshot and uh, you know I figured that was a pretty good projectile launcher so I commenced to killing the chickens and and shooting the windows out of the house before I got my backside war slap out I learned not to do that anymore and then uh, you know came BB guns and all this other good stuff so I grew up in a, a rural part of Virginia and um, the uh, you know we we hunted you know, with all kinds of things, uh, weren't particularly good at it, but, you know, that's, that's what boys in the country do. So, um, the, the next major event is, uh, it was December of 1969. I got this letter from the government and said, greetings, uh, we need you to come and work with us a little bit, you know, for a couple of years, as a matter of fact, in the military service. And I'm like, holy cow. So, Anyhow, I uh, entered into basic training in uh, January of 70 and um, uh, went through infantry AIT. And I, I really kind of liked it because in infantry AIT, we got to shoot everything that was man portable. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. And machine guns, I mean, like it's the first time I'd ever shot machine guns. So uh, that, was, that was good stuff. I uh, got to shoot M14s and M16s, and I like the 16 better. Uh, the M14, I was kind of a uh, smaller, let's say, um, about 140 pounds soaking wet, and um, the the 16 was was easier to shoot. So I uh, graduated from AIT. Everybody, uh, with the exception of 11 of us, went to Vietnam, and. Uh, mm -hmm. I got selected to go to small arms armor school. So I just finished learning how to shoot these things. Now I got to uh, learn how to fix them. So I was a pretty good mechanic anyway. So I, I took to that, you know, like the proverbial duck to water and, and uh, did real good with that. And uh, not too far uh, after graduating from that school, uh, and it was, again, a sequence of events that was just absolutely amazing. They needed uh, trainers and they needed drill sergeants because uh, all the drill sergeants at that point in time were being moved out and uh, 
going over to be uh, platoon sergeants in Vietnam. So I uh, graduated from drill sergeant school in June of 1972. And I'm like, wow, uh, I couldn't even spell drill sergeant, you know, six months ago, <laughs> now I are one type of thing. So it was obvious that I knew something about firearms and I knew how to use them and all that. So I was the guy that got to teach uh, BRM, basic rifle marksmanship. And, and uh, I kind of liked that. Uh, and, and that started the learning process for me, you know, uh, in the Army, it's, you know, I talk, you listen, and then an explicative after that. And um, I saw some kids that just, you know, couldn't get it. And I honestly, at that point in time, I wasn't smart enough to reach them. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I, I knew that they were having problems. Uh, you know, they were jerking the trigger, closing their eyes, doing all the, the you know, the normal stuff. Uh, and they weren't qualifying, so they got recycled. And I really, I, I felt bad about that. But again, I didn't know what to do about it at the time. So it was at that point, I started to think, all right, so there's got to be a better way to do this. And, you know, that's basically where I got started. And, and I'm, you know, ended here today, and I'll continue tomorrow. Uh, looking for a better way to make behavioral change in other humans when it relates to firearms. So anyhow, um, along the way, I, I uh, got to, I shot some competitions and I did well enough and I got picked up on the various teams and all this other good stuff. And I um, had uh, graduated from the, the Army to the Army Reserve at that point in time. And um, I uh, shot uh, uh, com competitive, uh, the 2700 bullseye was the thing. So uh, I wanted to, uh, I, one of my goals was to become a distinguished pistol shot. And, uh, you know, I don't, it, it really doesn't make a, a lot of difference, but it's, it's kind of a big deal, you know, to the shooters at any rate. So uh, I got distinguished with the pistol and, and I took a, uh, sabbatical for a little while and did, did some other military stuff and uh, the rifle people needed somebody to uh, you know understood what to do with a, uh, a muzzle and a trigger so uh, I got kind of drafted into you know uh, shooting the rifle so I shot on the national pistol team national rifle team uh, got um, distinguished with the rifle and um, you know, at, at that point in time, uh, Army-wise, uh, and I'm not sure how, it, it, this I don't think would apply to the, the civilian world. That's kind of like a, uh, a different thing. But um, there were uh, fewer double distinguished shooters than there were Medal of Honor recipients. And that's not to make any comparison whatsoever. I mean, the people that are the Medal of Honor re recipients are the, you know, the top of the notch from, from A to Z. Uh, you know, you can't take anything away from them. But on the other hand, you know, with, with all the people that attempt to get distinguished with either the rifle or the pistol and uh, can make it with both, uh, and, you know, that, that tells you that, you know, you got some ideas to you know, which end the bullet comes out of and what to do with the trigger. So um, I got uh, 
got distinguished with the rifle and then I got kidnapped, as I like to say, over to the international squad. And uh, uh, this, this was a uh, uh, combat team type thing. So uh, we competed against all the, uh, the, the NATO countries, all of our allied countries, uh, all the services, all the military uh, academies, everybody competes. Uh, our uh, our group was when I got there a soup sandwich. Um, it it was one of these good old boy things, and you know you, you you couldn't shoot your way on the team because everybody knew everybody, and they were the same people uh, day in day out. So I unbeknownst really one of my friends who was getting ready to be the team captain and later became the team captain um, knew what I could do and uh, he wanted me to come on board and uh, be the, the coach so uh, once I, I got anointed as the coach I told everybody I says okay so here's the deal everybody's going to shoot their way on the team if you don't shoot the scores you don't get to go with the team period and that wasn't very popular. Uh, and I said, you know, I'll hold myself to that that same standard. And, uh, you know, I was a double distinguished shooter. I was a good enough shooter at that point in time that uh, in all honesty, uh, there were 24 of us on the team and I was probably the number three shooter. Um, so um, occasionally I'd you know, show the boys where they, they they're pooped in the buckwheat. But, you know, most of the time I was busy doing other stuff. Uh, my my forte was pistol, still is, but uh, I wasn't shy about using a rifle either. And uh, anyhow, so uh, in my tenure with that group, which was uh, about nine years, we had five world championships. Uh, and that meant, you know, we beat active army, uh, uh, Marine Corps, all the reserve teams, National Guard, all the foreign teams, everybody. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that, that that was a pretty good accomplishment. So with all that, plus doing some military work uh, with with uh, people deploying overseas, I got just a, a unbelievable amount of experience in working with everything from national champions to people that were absolutely afraid of the gun to disabled people. Uh, I, I Disabled as an example, I had a, uh, a female E7 that um, couldn't, couldn't even hit a target at 25 meters with an M16 from arrest. And I'm like, okay, she'd been in for 17 years. And I, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Um, so I went over and I says, uh, so show me, let me, let me see what you're doing here. So she had her index finger and, you know, her, her index finger was doing this constantly. And every once in a while, the gun would go off. And I'm like, what are you doing with your finger? She says, well, I can't feel the trigger. I'm like, say what? She says, I can't feel the trigger with that finger. So I just have to keep moving it until the gun goes off. And I'm like, well, no wonder you can't hit me. I mean, good grief. Yeah. So I said, what happened? She says, well, I got cut 
when I was in, uh, before she went in the army and her, her ulnar nerve had been cut. So she couldn't feel the, the trigger finger. I said, well, can you feel with your middle finger? Oh yeah. I said, well, let's use the middle finger to pull the trigger. Little bit of work with her and she qualified just barely expert from not being able to hit the target. So she got 31 out of 40 hits on the target by just changing uh -huh. the trigger finger. So, you know, that was one of my little, little uh, feathers in my hat. Uh -huh. And one of the things that I've been known for, you know, particularly in the military is my diagnostic capability. You know, uh, not only find out what the problem is, tell them what it is, why they're doing it, what we need to do to fix it, and then implement the fix and then see them through to success. And it's, I mean, it's, it's just so simple if you know what you're doing that, uh, you know, it's, it's just crazy. So that kind of took part of the, uh, part of the end of things. Bank Miller, who was one of the co-founders of the SIG Academy with me, and I met back in the early 70s, and we were uh, shooting uh, on separate team, competitive teams. And Bank was about the only one that was giving me any trouble on the scoreboard. So I thought, well, you know what, I ought to go over and just see if I can't break his index finger and, and uh, eliminate the competition. Well, it, I don't know whether you know Bank or not, but I, you know, Bank, I know. I know of him, but I don't know him. Nicest guy you ever want to meet. As a matter of fact, uh, he, he was here to visit me today. He lives in uh, in Gulfport, Mississippi, but his, his daughter lives about 20 minutes from me. So he comes up to visit okay. us sometimes. So he and I had lunch together. Anyhow, so Banks, one of these likable people. I mean, you, you can't help it. And so we became fast friends. And um, over the years, you know, we'd find ourselves shooting together and then we'd go, you know, we'd go somewhere else and, you know, and then it was like a sine wave. We'd just keep coming back and, and, you know, we'd separate and come back and separate and all that. So uh, I was just finishing up a, a, a pretty big military mission at uh, Fort Bragg and I was getting ready to uh, move elsewhere. And uh, this was on an active duty tour. And all of a sudden our funding got, uh, pull from under us and um, bank had been asking me about coming to uh, to work with him with a, a reserve unit in the uh, uh, northern virginia area uh, the the commanding general was a friend of both ours and uh, he, he out of 17 uh, major subordinate commands in in the uh, eastern region of the country he was number 17th in marksmanship and he wanted to fix that. So anyhow, long story short, I told bank at first, I'm not interested. And uh, then we lost funding and then I had nowhere to be. And uh, I wasn't quite ready to retire at that point in time. So I called him up and I said, uh, what can we do? He says, well, come on up and I'll introduce you to everybody. And if you like it and they like you, uh, we'll take this ball and run with it. So that all worked out. And in nine months time, uh, Bank and I still laugh and joke about it. We, we took the smokers in the hall. And, you know, that was 1989, I guess, 88, 89, somewhere along in there. 
and that's when you could still smoke you know and and it, literally the smokers in the hall so we take these people that didn't have anything to do uh literally they were just lollygagging out in the hall and ask them if they'd like to learn how to shoot and uh you know bank at that point in time civilian wise was the uh chief firearms instructor for the drug enforcement administration at quantico so uh you know he he knew his way around uh, muzzles and triggers too so we put together a combat team and, and what a combat team is how that different differs from you know the standard uh, uh, shooting teams that a lot of people resonate with is you're shooting uh, rack grade guns you're shooting uh, with full field gear um, just just like you were literally going into combat in the field so you had all the stuff on and um, you know rack grade guns, uh, standard ammunition, and that kind of stuff. So it was a little different world than, you know, having the precision uh, mm -hmm. pistols and rifles that uh, the, the, the uh, uh, bullseye people did. So um, we put together a combat team. We went to all army. And that what all army is, is um, a composite of all the National Guard folks, all the Army Reserve folks, all the active component folks. And uh, the only people that beat us that year was the 82nd Airplane Gang, uh, 82nd Airborne, as we, and, and we call them the Airplane Gang. Uh, they beat us by X's, and that was it. We tied them a num numerical score. And to be real honest and not to be sexist, we had an all-female M60 machine gun team, and those girls just couldn't carry the pig, as we called the M60, uh, as fast as some of those young bucks in, in the 82nd. So... Uh, you know, just a, just a fact of life. But uh, we saw in nine months where, what Bank and I could do and his strong points from my weak points and vice versa. So uh, along about that time, uh, Ted Rowe, who was the president of uh, SIG Arms, at that, uh, that was the name of the company at that, that juncture, uh -huh. um, was very interested in getting uh, SIG pistols um, into the federal agencies and everywhere else or anywhere else he could possibly get them. So um, long story short, he hired Bank and myself and uh, we added Jim Fry for a little while and he went back to doing whatever he was doing. But Bank and I basically um, uh, got the academy up and running and um, the idea was to uh, teach the law enforcement people uh, uh, armor schools, uh, transition schools, and instructor schools. And of course, the instructor schools were for the larger agencies that, uh, you know, we just didn't have the manpower to, to do transition with. So that's what we got started with. And um, then, uh, I, you know, it, it just, it it blossomed from there. We We did all kinds of advanced stuff. We got involved in uh, defensive tactics and knives and you know you name it uh, my real forte i mean somebody's got to take the responsibility uh was the armorer schools and um i i literally taught armor schools in all 50 states and 25 foreign countries so uh you know i i, I wrote the manuals you know did the whole thing from the a to z uh, I like the shooting aspect of it, but uh, you know, also like the mechanical aspect of it. And uh, 
one of the, the things that we did to you know prove that the guns were as good as we were uh, is we we do something called a shake and bake and uh, typically we'd have 30 people in a class and we take all 30 guns you know we usually did uh, two two sixes or, or two and two twenties in a two-day class and a lot of times we do two thirties along with it and uh, anyhow we uh would take uh let's say we're doing the two two sixes we'd take all two two six take them completely apart uh all 50 pieces throw them in a big tub uh have the the people keep their serial numbered parts which is the barrel slide and frame Mm-hmm. and then go up to the tub and fish out enough parts to uh, to build a gun and then once they built the gun they uh, would bring it to us and function check it in front of us uh, whoever the instructor was and then uh, we'd take it and function check it and check that off uh, that uh, they knew what they were doing um, they also had an academic test to to uh, to pass as well so if they could do that uh, that told us that they were capable of maintaining uh, troubleshooting and repairing uh, guns uh, whose owners, uni- users, or operators' lives depended on those guns to work. And uh, I wasn't bashful about failing people that just couldn't do it because I, I, I just flat said, look, uh, if you can't work on somebody's gun whose life depends on this gun working 100% of the time, there's no way I can certify you mm-hmm. to an armor so um that's that's um the the the, i guess the first half of it then as we got into uh you know teaching people how to shoot um it was an economic change with the um with the company and i went from being a cost center to a profit center and the the problem with that is now I have to make money on a budget that I've got to deal with. So I had to open up. Prior to that, we were law enforcement, military only. All others need not apply. So then we had to open this thing up to uh, the civilian population, which I had no objection to. But the, the problem is that you can't teach civilians the way you teach military and law enforcement people for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. So um, I I started to, you know, build classes. Uh, at that that uh, bank had retired by that point in time, so I was the director, and um, I I had to build classes that um, would cater to the the civilian end of things. And um, then I started to think, what about women? And I looked at it from an economic standpoint. I mean, like shooting and shooting classes and, and, and gun-related stuff in today's environment is disposable income territory. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't have to have these things to live. Uh, some might argue with me on that, and I probably would argue with myself on that, to be honest with you. But uh, anyhow, uh, disposable income. So who controls the disposable income in your household and my household and everybody else's household? It's the lady of the house. So if you can get the lady of the house interested in shooting, all right, that's that's one thing. And usually the kids, uh, if they're old enough, get involved 
So now you've doubled your money uh, or your, your clients. And of course, the old man has to come along too. He can't be shown up by the little lady of the house, if you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying. So now we've got the whole family as customers rather than just one guy as a customer. So we got heavy into the, the ladies only thing. Uh, we evolved into uh, female instructors. Uh, my wife at the time, um, uh, who's probably the greatest female instructor I've ever seen. I mean, she's just magic. Um, and I say at the time she passed away in, in uh, September of 18. Uh, oh, my condolences. She, uh, she uh, left us fairly quickly and we don't know why. You know, we, it's a long story. It's really not appropriate here, but uh, yeah. she, uh, she influenced so many women and she influenced so many young kids that uh, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, she had a, just a, a, a way of communicating and, uh, you know, she didn't look like the firearms instructor. She was skinny. She was good looking. Um, she, uh, uh, very matter of fact, no nonsense. Uh, she was a grandma and um, she had the best trigger control of anybody. And I mean, anybody that I've ever seen. Uh, if you were to take your gun, whatever you carry, and unload it and give it to her and tell her to dry fire at one time, you can rest assured that the gun would not move when the striker released or the hammer fell. I mean, she was amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. She was an accomplished hunter, uh, handgun hunter. Um, she, uh, I, and she always did this stuff in front of witnesses, you know, so it, it was like amazing. She shot a white tail buck at 247 yards with a, a 10 inch barrel Thompson contender. Uh, wow. And the, the, the buck was in its bed laying down. She saw it and the, the buck stood up and laid back down. And he was done right there. And there were seven people standing there watching her do it. So anyhow, enough about her. Uh, but she uh, led the way. And then we had other female instructors that came in. And we found that women teaching women was just, just fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, completely different complexion of uh, a classroom. You know, I would come in and the women would be all prim and proper. I'd leave, and I did this a couple of times. I'd, I'd leave and just sit outside and, and listen to the, uh, you know, what's going on in the class after Linda took over. Mm -hmm. They were laughing and giggling, and some of the language that they were using made me blush. And, <laughs> and, and, and but you know, they were they were amongst their own, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. And they were very comfortable. And uh, when she said something, they believed it. Uh, whereas if I came in, you know, it was, it was, it was a different story. They had to, they had to be shown and, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyhow, um, as we got into that, uh, I really got heavy into diagnostics and, you know, why do people do the things that they do? And I'd already delved into that a little bit with the, you know, the military end of things, you know, flinching, jerking, healing, and all the white people. Mm -hmm. that. Uh, I got into uh, to human vision pretty deep. I, I worked with three different behavioral optometrists, and uh, 
the uh, behavioral optometrist to a lot of people is like voodoo and witchcraft. I mean, the, the op, uh, uh, standard optometrists don't recognize them and the ophthalmologists don't recognize them either. But uh, in, in my way of thinking, the behavioral optometrist is, is really the, the, the guy or gal to work with when you're talking about mm -hmm. sport or, or eye-hand coordination type stuff. So um, I uh, started to look at, you know, why people do things uh, the way they do. And um, the, the first thing that uh, I've, I've felt that needed to be attacked is why do people jerk the trigger? Why, why do they jerk the trigger? Uh, why do they flinch? And is there a difference? And I found out there was a difference. And there, there are all kinds of maladies that, uh, that crop up, but they all go back to how people learn and how the body naturally responds to things that, uh, that threaten them. So uh, I started to look at... Um, Overcoming the self-preservation response is what I call it, and the 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 reason for that is uh, when a person is threatened, and particularly with a loud noise, uh, it's it's an invariable action that people take, and they close their eyes momentarily to protect their vision. They lower their center of gravity to prepare for a physical attack. Um, they clench their muscles so that uh, they're ready to launch when they figure out where they're going to go. And then they open their eyes and look for somewhere else to be. And if it's necessary, wow. they go there. So again, they move involuntarily when a noise that um, is uh, something that they deem as unsafe or threatening uh, is created. So I want to stop right there just for a second. Sure. And if we go back to conventional training, you've taught this way, I've taught this way, everybody that's ever taught firearms has has, has talked about, okay, so you're, you're, you know, we're, we're going to build you from your stance up, you know, and your feet need to be more than the shoulders width apart, dominant foot offset so that the lead edge of the toes, even with the instep, and, you know, on and on and on. So we build that all the way up and we go all the way to uh, sights and trigger and all these things. And what we forgot is over in the adult learning field, uh, the human mind can cognitively process five to seven bits of information. And I'm going to tell you in my experience is closer to five um, at a time. And when stress is generated, that diminishes. And sometimes it's down to one or two bits of information at a time. So if we understand how the subconscious is programmed, uh, we know that that comes through conscious, the, the cognitive mind. So when the cog, bless you, when the cognitive mind, <laughs> when the cognitive <laughs> And I'm muted, but I guess you gave it away there. <laughs> when, when, when the cognitive mind, uh, is occupied with, you know, stance and, and trigger and all these other crazy things, uh, it's completely overloaded. So when the gun goes off, there's no way for the subconscious mind to understand that that noise is of no consequence to your personal safety. And um, to, to be specific for those that are interested, 
the two little guys in the brainstem called the amygdala, the crisis control center. And uh, they are the guys when you touch the hot stove that that cause you to respond without thinking that, um, you know, wow, going to create a blister, better move my hand. I don't have to do that. You know, you, you automatically respond. So when the, the uh, amygdala feels threatened, that's when the body moves involuntarily to prepare for attack and escape. So that's the, the, one of the reasons that people jerk and heal and flinch and all that other good stuff. Um, the other reason is we're programmed to protect our vision um, at all cost. And if I, if you and I were in the same room together, if I wadded up a, a just a piece of paper and threw it at you, you could not keep your eyes open and watch it bounce off your nose. Can't do it. You know, you you'd catch it, you'd move your head, you'd 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 take evasive action. In other words, so when the gun fires, it moves back towards your face. And if your brain, your, your amygdala doesn't understand that the movement of the gun is of no consequence to your vision or your personal safety, it's natural to close the eyes to protect your vision. It's also natural to push the gun, to preempt the rearward movement of the gun uh, with a forward push. And when you see people shooting the ground halfway between them and the target, um, you, you know that... Uh, they are not comfortable with the movement of the gun. So therefore, when they pull the trigger, they're preempting that rearward movement with the forward push. And that's why the muzzle's pointing at the ground when the bullet comes out. So with all that, I'm like, okay, so how do we fix this? And I'm a big one for keeping things simple. You know, uh, simple is good. I mean, that's, that's something that um, is called the SIG principle um the 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 less fluff that you can have the the better off you are so i looked at all right so how can we how can we program a person so that they understand that this noise and this movement of the gun is of no consequence to the personal safety and so i decided okay what we'll do is um we'll take them to the range and uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about individual people that uh, you can do this uh, with with multiples in certain cases uh, as well. But worst case scenario, um, take the person to the range. Uh, no, no target, just a backstop that'll accept the bullet and um, have them load the gun, point it into the backstop and uh, have them close their eyes because we want to eliminate every uh, sensory possibility that we can and let them listen to the gun. And one of the secrets to doing that is uh, to suggest that the gun is going to just be a light pop, not an explosion, not a bang, not, not anything other than a light pop. Uh, make sure that they've got plugs and muffs in and, um, you, you have them shoot one round on your command and suggest to them that you'd like for them to savor that sound, much like they would a piece of hard candy if they were just kind of swishing it around in the mouth. I want you to 
savor that sound and give them a minute or so and uh, let them shoot another one. And I'm a big one with uh, ABC one, two, three. Uh, that's how we learn a lot of things in life and why not use it on, on firearms. So mm -hmm. I let them shoot three shots on my command. And I suggest then that if they'd like to shoot a few more, just to listen to it on their own, they're welcome to do that. They've got plenty of ammunition. They can shoot as many as they like. I've never had a student go more than six total rounds. That's not saying they won't, but you know, that, it's like I, I let them quote unquote, get comfortable. They get bored with it. Okay. You know, I'm ready to do the next thing now. Done that. Right. So six is generally all it takes. The, uh, the other half of it is, is when I talk about uh, gun movement, uh, I talk about the gun pushes in the hand. I don't talk about recoil. I don't talk about kick. I mean, I, when I'm talking to instructors and I'm explaining why we don't use, let's say the word kick, I'm like, do you know anybody that likes to be kicked? Other than Gary Klukowitz, I don't think there's anybody else. <laughs> if you know Gary, you, you understand, but uh, he's a great guy. Uh, but uh, nobody likes to be kicked. So when you tell somebody the gun's just going to kick a little bit, you've just told them that they're going to be hurt. They don't know how long it's going to last or how bad it's going to be, but they're going to be hurt because right. they're going to be kicked. Right. Now, when we use the word push, uh, different story. Uh, in, in our society, you know, if you need to get into a crowded elevator, you can kind of push your way in without pissing too many people off. But if you start kicking and swinging, uh, you know, people are going to throw down and, and uh, get back after you. So when we talk about the gun movement as it fires, it pushes in the hand, it, the muzzle lifts off the target and settles back to the original location. So the idea with that is I'm pre-programming them to understand what to expect when they shoot multiple shots. They don't have to fight the gun. They just let it rise and settle and rise and settle. And it's real simple. Uh, when we shoot the first couple of shots, I get their head out of the way. And if they're a right-handed shooter, I'll have them look at the uh, front left of the slide so that they can see. And I, I, again, I pre-program them a little see how little the gun moves when you fire it. So we look at the left side, we may look at the right, depends on, you know, it's kind of intuitive to me. Um, but uh, to, to start with, it'd be good to look, you know, a few shots on one side, a few shots on the other, and then look at the back of the gun, uh, like the, uh, the back plate on a Glock or the hammer on a uh, hammer fired gun, uh, look directly at that and pull the trigger and see how little the gun moves. So what you've done at that point in time is you've proven to the amygdala, the crisis control center, that that noise is of no consequence to the personal safety and the movement of the gun is a, no, of no consequence to the personal safety. So that pretty well eliminates uh, jerking and healing and flinching and all these other crazy things that people find themselves doing that move the muzzle off the target before the bullet exits. And of course, if that happens, we don't hit the target. Um, so those little odds and ends are uh, critical, in, in my opinion, uh, for foundational level shooters and for shooters that um, are having trouble shooting. I mean, I've 
taken people who have been shooting for 20, 30 years or whatever, you know, and, and uh, you know, they, they, they weren't particularly successful. And once they understood, and this is the magic word, uh, why, you know, what's going on, um, I'm, I'm a big what, how, and why kind of guy, you know, and, and you know, no matter what it is, um, you have to be able to describe it. You have to be able to demonstrate how to perform it. And you have to be able to explain why it's beneficial to the person that you're teaching it to. And if you can't do any of those three, you got no business teaching it. You know, give it to somebody else. So, um, you know, I I can go on and on and on and on uh, with different diagnostics and, and different mm -hmm. types of things, different drills. Um, you know, one I would like to cover is the wall drill. Sure. sure. I actually had that in my notes to ask you about. Okay. So All right. Go right, Good. right ahead. Good. So, and let me just say this. I haven't in, invented anything. Uh, I haven't had an independent thought in my whole life, I don't think. <laughs> uh, and, you know, realistically speaking, somebody else has thought of this. You know, mm -hmm. I may be the vehicle for this particular platform, um, but I, you know, I'm nobody special. I'm nobody unique. Mm -hmm. And, and um, no. you know, it's just, just my way of explaining it. And for a lot of people, it makes sense. And if it makes sense, they'll accept it and uh, and use it. So anyhow, the, the, the wall drill came from a self-diagnostic that uh, I had on myself. And, and to be honest with you, I've been my, my, my biggest test bed. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the stuff that I came up with, I had this problem. And then I had to figure out why I had it. And then I had to figure out what to do about it and then how to fix it. And I come to find out that I'm not unique. That all these other people out here that are having the same problem, or, you know, have the same things that I do. Right. So I found out that I'd conditioned myself as I pulled the trigger that my eye focus would transition uh, as the, the trigger would go to the rear, my eye focus would transition towards the target. And I'd conditioned myself to try to see the impact of the bullet on the target. Um, at the, at the time the bullet impacted the target. So I finally figured out what I was doing, but I couldn't stop it. And, and I'm like, you know, it, I have this, this theory, if you, if you can't convince them, you force them. And that's uh -huh. really basically the only two ways you can change somebody's mind. So I figured, okay, I, I can't make myself do this. So I'll make myself do this. So what I, I reverted back to was years and years and years ago when I first started shooting militarily, we would take a number two lead pencil, put tape around it and uh, put it down the muzzle of the 1911 and dry fire uh, up against a wall uh, with that pencil. And we literally would shoot groups with the pencil point. And that actually was pretty effective, but uh, what I did is I took that and I thought, okay, so my eye won't stay on the front sight if I have something in the way so it can't go forward of the front sight, I'll make it stay on the front sight. So that's how the wall drill got started. Um, I, I 
literally touch the wall and then break contact with the wall so that the gun was free to move and pull the trigger. And when I first started doing that, my it was very painful to my eye because my body uh, had conditioned itself so that as the trigger finger moved rearward, the eye focus moved forward. And um, since there was nowhere for the eye focus to go, the muscles in the eye were trying to make it go somewhere, but we, we couldn't get there from here. So I'm like, okay, uh, this will help with follow through. And then I, I found out that um, when I was pulling the trigger, uh, the front sight would dance in the rear sight notch. It would go left or right or up or down or whatever. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, shoot, when I'm doing this live fire, that's exactly what the gun's doing. And that's why my shots are going places that I didn't think they were going to go. And then I found that not only did I have some, some visual things to work with, I had some trigger finger things to work with. You know, it's like, uh, how am I pulling the trigger? Um, uh, how am I gripping the gun? Am I doing this with two hands or with one hand? And I found that... Um, uh, and this is typical for a lot of shooters. They'll shoot one or two shots pretty good with the index finger. And then as they start to quote unquote bear down on number three, four, and five, if we're going to shoot a five shot group, the rest of the fingers get involved. Yep. And, you know, what we call milk in the grip, you know, you can call it whatever you want to, but as the trigger finger moves, the rest of the fingers start to join in. And, um, uh, you know, the wall drill diagnoses that because you see it and you feel it. So uh, long story short, I always said that the wall drill teaches you what you need to see and feel in order to deliver a good shot. Um, there's so much you can do with it, you know, with, you know, one hand, two hand, both hands. Um, you can shoot wall drill with rifles. Um, you know, prone position, you know, different position, you know, everything. And to, to go right back to where I start most of my lessons, which is fairly important. And I, you know, I encourage the, the, uh, the listeners to pay attention here. Uh, when we're working with firearms, there are two things that we're primarily concerned with. Number one is safety. And number two is success. Safety is defined as going home with the same amount of holes you left home with. Mm -hmm. Success is defined as hitting your target. In order to do either one, all you have to know is two things. Number one is muzzle management. And number two is trigger finger discipline. From a safety standpoint, we all understand that the only place the bullet comes out of the gun is the end of the barrel or the muzzle. Mm -hmm. So if we keep that muzzle pointed in a safe direction, and we define that's any direction in which should the gun fire, minimal property damage and no personal injury would occur. It's simple. So when we touch the gun for the first time in its storage location and we carry it to wherever it is that we're gonna carry it or put it in our holster or whatever else, we need to be cognitively aware of where the muzzle is pointing. As long as it's pointed in a safe direction, we're in good shape. From a success standpoint, 
if the muzzle's pointing at the target when the bullet exits, what do you think the likelihood of hitting the target might be? It's pretty great if it's pointed at the target. There you go. I mean, that's it. So if you're managing the muzzle, you've got the muzzle pointed at the target, mm -hmm. what's not to like? Right. So with trigger finger discipline, it's uh, real simple again, safety and success. No gun that most of us would be caught handling will go off by itself. So if we keep our primary digit off the trigger until we're on the target and ready to shoot it, mm -hmm. you know, there we go. Now, the success end of things is pretty simple. If you can stabilize the muzzle on the target and pull the trigger without affecting that stability, you will hit within the gun and the ammunition's capability of shooting. Can you argue with me on that? Nope. Okay. So most people can't either. I've had some that, you know, you see, take a deep breath and like, <laughs> <laughs> Some of my my contemporaries who will remain nameless call me Mr. Non-Arguable. I don't think <laughs> quite, quite, quite that hard, but, um, you know, I'd like to present things so that it really makes sense. And it's kind of hard to argue. Um, so when I'm working with anybody new, I don't care who it is. I don't care if they never touched a gun. I don't care if they're, you know, uh, special warfare, whatever's, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. uh, muzzle management, trigger finger discipline, safety and success. That's your foundation. And we can build on that. Or if that's all you need, won't have time to know, that'll keep you out of trouble. So, uh, when we talk about stabilizing the muzzle, mm -hmm. that's literally, you, you point the gun at the target and hold it as still as you can. That varies from day to day. That varies with your caffeine intake. That varies with your, your rest. That varies with a whole bunch of different things. But you can't make yourself any more still by trying than you can if you can actually relax just a little bit. Hold the gun as still as you can. Uh, learning to operate the trigger, and I don't think it's any any real argument these days. And I used to get a lot of argument about which was more important, the sights or the trigger. And I'm like, well, take the sights off the gun and give me the gun with a decent trigger, and I'll just shoot your ass to death, you know, like right away. You know, I don't need sights. If you understand how to position the 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 muzzle in relation to the target, and you know, sites sites are helpful, but we don't have to have them. However, if you can't smoothly operate the trigger to a degree that you don't add much and preferably no extra movement to the muzzle, it's going to be hard to hit the target. Okay. Just just plain and simple. So uh, one of the things, and I'll, I'll kind of deviate here a little bit. Uh, I, I learned this with the, the wall drill, and um, I brought it together with a few other concepts. And uh, as, as uh, we, we may have talked about previously, uh, I like to blend uh, uh -huh. biomechanics, vision, and, and the brain all into uh, one part of shot delivery. So 
uh, and this is this is magic. This this works just absolutely amazing. So I'll tell the the student. All right, put the sights on the target, and uh, I like to use center. You know, just the center of whatever. It works combat, competition, anything else. But you know, just put the sights on the target. See the front sight. Put your finger on the trigger, and pull the front sight back through the rear sight notch, just like it was on a rail. So what I'm doing is I'm occupying the eye, the trigger finger, and the brain all at the same time to one common goal. Not only does that help you to achieve the goal consistently, time after time after time again, that also helps to eliminate distraction. So um, if, if you've got the, the, the three aspects necessary to deliver a shot working together, you know, just put the trick, put the sights on the target, put your finger on the trigger, pull the front sight to the eye, and you're good to go. Uh, of course, I know we've got the red dot folks out there thinking, well, what about the red dot? Well, you pull the red <laughs> dot, pull the red dot to the center of the eye with the trigger. And it's it's very much like you, um, I'm going to date myself. Everybody knows I'm old anyway, but you know, years ago, we had a carburetor linkage and mm -hmm. gas pedal to the, you know, we didn't have carburetor. Nobody knows what a carburetor is, much less the linkage. But anyhow, there was a connection from the gas pedal to the carburetor. And when you pressed on the gas, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that opened the butterflies on the carburetor and increased the airflow in the gas into the engine, made it go faster. All right. So envision some sort of a connection. If you're old like me, carburetor linkage would work fine. I mean, you, you pick your own thing, but a connection between the trigger and the front sight. And as you move the trigger, you move the front sight just like it were on a rail through the center of the, uh, the rear sight notch. Um, so that, uh, from a precision standpoint, is absolute magic. Uh, from somebody that needs to shoot a lot of shots quickly but accurately um, that's magic as well um, so we can you know it, it, the the the, uh, the the wall drill will help you do all that stuff you know it's, it helps you to keep your eye focus where it's supposed to it helps you to move the trigger without causing extra movement of the gun it helps you to understand that your grip needs to be consistent. And, you know, it, it just, uh, it's, it's a great uh, self-diagnostic tool. And, uh, you know, the, the step past that is something we call the bullet hole drill. Um, I didn't invent that. Um, I have my own slant on the bullet hole drill. Uh -huh. But um, basically, um, with the... Uh, you know, once you, you, you're comfortable with the wall drill, then you uh, get uh, 10 feet, three yards away from the target. And uh, plain target. My favorite target, by the way, is an eight-inch paper plate. I mean, you take all the rest of the targets in the world, throw them in the, throw them in the trash can. I don't care. The eight-inch mm -hmm. paper plate does everything from a hunting standpoint, combat standpoint, uh, planking. I mean, you name it. Plus, you got something to eat dinner on, too. So, <laughs> So, uh, and we've done that. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I uh, did a class for 
bunch of folks and they uh, got pizza in and all that and didn't have anything to eat off of them. So they took all my target plates and, uh, <laughs> and we made the pizza off. And then we shot the dirty plates. So yeah, got two for the price of one. So uh, the 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 original bullet hole drill was um, just shoot a hole in a in a target, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and then um, cover that that hole up with your front sight and shoot all the rest of the shots, you know, five, ten, whatever you got in that same hole. And the uh, the goal was to be able to have all shots at least touching if not well within that uh, that hole. And ultimately, uh, and I've done this a couple of times and I've seen a few, a few other people do it a couple of times, you know, shooting a nine millimeter, uh, you shoot 10 shots and you literally have a nine millimeter hole. It's just one hole. Uh, can't do it all the time. I'm not even sure I can do it at all anymore, but um, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that, that's kind of the goal. So uh, that is a great diagnostic tool. Um, it you know you can shoot it right-handed, left-handed, two-hand you know all the all the the variables, and uh, you know that works good. Uh, if you've got somebody that that's wants to look at their target, this helps to break them from looking at their target because you're close enough that it, it there's there's there's, uh, there's no real need to. The interesting thing is you can take that target and you can, uh, let's say, move them out to 15 yards or 25 yards. The, the holes in the three-yard target that are out of the group, so to speak, they might even be touching, but, you know, they're out like at 7 o'clock or something like that. You will see the same pattern at distance. Yep. And, and what that tells you is they're, they're, they're gripping fingers are getting involved in the, the, the trigger movement. But, you know, your diagnostics at three yards, the same thing at 15 yards, 25 yards, it just looks bigger at, uh -huh. at distance. Yeah. So those, uh, those are interesting little, uh, little, little things. And to be honest with you, um, you know, I, I, Spalding is is uh, is a great guy for teaching combatives. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, I I would pass my students off to uh, to him for the combative end of things. I can teach it. I've taught it, and and done well with it. But you know, my real interest is to get somebody foundationally sound so that on demand, they can put the shot exactly where they want it. And they can do it right-handed, left-handed. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I teach a point and precision class. You know, we take the sights completely off the guns. Uh, we shoot, pay, uh, well, steel plates or paper plates at 25 yards with the guns with no sights and we expect to hit them. You know, it's like, how can this be? Well, you have to understand uh, our hand coordination, number one, and you have to understand the relationship of the gun, uh, the outline of the slide or the outline of the gun, which correlates directly to the muzzle, which is where the bullet yeah. comes out. You know, so it's it's all easy stuff if uh, if you understand, you know, 
what you need to do. Right. And and that that takes me over to an, another area. And feel free to stop me if you've got a question. On oh, that. I'll go right ahead. Go ahead. Um, I I like to do stuff called objective based training. Um, and the the objective based training is basically I'll take a student that has some skill uh you know they they can load and unload the gun and and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and um I'll tell them what I want them to be able to do and rather than going through all this detail of you know you got to grip this and you got to hold it just like this and your feet have got to be just so and I mean you've seen it where instructors have gone out there and moved somebody's foot you know like an inch and a half mm -hmm. you know, to correct their stance and I'm like cut me some slack will you uh, <laughs> but anyhow um I like to see what I can actually get out of the student naturally before I start to modify whatever they can do naturally. And mm -hmm. I've found that people are incredibly adaptable. And if you just tell them what you want to do or you want them to do, they'll probably do it. So again, when I'm talking to instructors, I'm like, you know, when you when you're working with people, Give them something to work with or work towards and tell them you don't care. It's like going through a mountain. You don't care if they go over the mountain, through it, under it, around it, or whatever. As long as they're on the other side of the mountain, why do you care? And, you know, when we're talking stance, as an example, uh, I, I tend to be very generic about it because... Uh, everybody's built a little different we all have different centers of gravity we all have different uh, ranges of motion um you know you might have bad knees bad back and all this why the heck am i telling you you got to do this why don't i just tell you all i want you to do is to stabilize the muzzle on the target and i want you to be able to operate the trigger without affecting that stability that's number one number two from a stance standpoint i want you to be able to move uh, left, right, forward, or backward with equal ease. And that's really all I'm, I'm, I'm worried about. Because you have balance if you can stand up. You have mobility if you can move left, right, forward, or backward. And you have stability if you can stabilize the muzzle on the target. Why am I worried about anything else? I haven't had anybody really give me a good solid answer. So I, um, I can do, you know, I've, I've shot, you know, national and international level competitive shooting, and I understand, you know, stance and, you know, how, you know, I, uh, my our rifle jackets, uh, you know, when we shot high power, you know, you put two sweatshirts on and a leather jacket and, and you'd lace this thing up until you were just, I mean, you could barely move. And you're standing there shooting the, the rifle offhand. You were in a stance and in a position um, that was necessary to shoot the precision that we needed to, to do. But um, unless you're doing that kind of stuff, why, why are you concerned about that? Um, you know, when I talk simple things like natural point of aim, your body's in a neutral position. There's, there's no muscle tension. You're relaxed. That's it. 
your eye hand coordination puts you on the target. You know, it's like, hey, you, you point the target. You know, we've been doing this since we were babies in the crib. So if the gun fits you, which is, is a completely different story, uh, you know, the gun should point just like you pointed your index finger. If the gun points, you know, just like you point your index finger, the gun fits. And if you can reach the trigger and pull the trigger without uh, uh, moving the, the muzzle off the target, you notice I'm never, I, I don't talk about disturbing the sight alignment. Sight alignment is, is good. But the only reason you got sights on the gun is to help you to refine the position of the muzzle on the target. The position of the muzzle is the answer to the question. Right. So, and and please argue with me. I, you know, I know I'm talking to somebody that really knows what he's doing. I know I'm, I'm talking to somebody that's a great instructor. Um, and, you know, uh, if, if there's a question or an argument or just a difference of opinion, it doesn't insult me in the least. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have any disagreement. I, I'm enjoying uh, in taking all this information. So, um, so, um, you know, the objective-based thing, you know, I mean, I, I, that just streamlines the learning process. And going back to the simple end of things, uh, if you can make something so simple that it's easy to learn, it makes sense, people will do it. If you add so much to it, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do this and you've got to do every got to is uh, I don't want to do this. This is too hard for yeah. me. I'm not interested. Yeah. I need to be yeah. somewhere else. You know, what about lunch? Yeah. But if you take it from the standpoint, of, okay, point the gun at the target. Okay, and what I want you to do is pull the trigger, shoot one shot. Okay, keep the gun up on the target. I want you to take a step to the left. All right, point the gun at the target, pull the trigger. Okay. And, you know, if we wanted to do different positions and that kind of stuff, you know, I, uh, let's say intermediate positions i usually take people from standing to kneeling just put both knees on the ground and if you want to go to the prone position uh lean forward finger off the trigger keep the muzzle pointed towards the tar target you know and it's it's simple easy stuff to uh -huh. get in and out of for for most people can i make it more difficult i can make it so difficult that it's absolutely impossible for anybody to get there but yep. why my job is to make positive behavioral change in other human beings so that it's useful to them, so that they enjoy it, and they're successful. Yeah. Period. You know, as you mentioned, Spalding a couple of times. I've, you know, the hallmark of the handgun combatives. Oh, he's thing is, terrific. Is, is get is get get the firearm between you and the bad guy in a yeah. usable form, and then press the trigger without misaligning yeah. the gun. Yeah. And yeah. it's that simple. And we, the imperial we, tend to overcomplicate the whole thing by telling them, you know, this much percentage of your grip of this hand, this much percentage oh, of that hand, activate these. You know, and, and it makes, it's putting so much misinformation or useless extraneous information in, yep. in a shooter's head. Yep. Yeah. Put the gun between you and them in a usable form and then press the trigger without misaligning the gun. So, so let me, uh, I want to come back to grip just for a minute, but let me sure. say something that uh, it's been a, a pet peeve of mine. Mm -hmm. I'm not calling you down, so don't 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 go there. Oh, but, go right but, ahead. But, but uh, so you notice I keep saying pull the trigger. 
-hmm. And you notice I don't say press the trigger. And I use the word press. And I, you know, back during the Stone mm -hmm. Age, I actually used the word squeeze. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I always tell people when they talk about squeeze the trigger, I said, think about the last thing you squeezed. Don't want to know it's none of my business, but I guarantee yeah. you did it with all fingers together. Right. And if you tell somebody to squeeze the trigger, you're giving them permission to do this. Right. Yeah. So that's that's a no-no. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as press and pull, and I've gotten into some really good discussions <laughs> with people over, you know. All right. So when you get on an elevator, you press a button to change the floor, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. When you bench press, whatever it is, you are mm -hmm. moving the weights away from you, correct? Sure. In, in both cases, you know, and I can mm -hmm. go on, but I, you got the point. Right. Yeah. So when we move the trigger to cause the gun to fire, do we move it away from us or do we move it to us? Move it to us. And is when we are pulling a rope, we're not pressing a rope, we're pulling a rope to us. Huh. You with me? Yes, sir. So, so when we talk to our students and particularly the foundational levels that don't know mm -hmm. anything, mm -hmm. if we tell them to press the trigger, we confuse their mind with what they understand press to be as opposed to what pull might be. Okay. So my contention is, is why teach them something that's conflicting mm -hmm. with what they've known all their life? Why not just tell them what they're going to do and be done with it? So okay. that's the reason I say pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason I don't say press the trigger. And I don't hold, you know, people can say press or whatever they want to. I don't care. It doesn't right. make any difference. But it's, right. again, how people learn. Right. So... I, I use something called analogous training mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's taking something that somebody's familiar with and then I parlay that over into what I want them to become familiar with. And I've, I've worked with, you know, pro ball players, uh, you know, all kinds of folks, golfers, I, golfers are kind of my, my, my favorite because golf is so similar to shooting it's just unbelievable uh, the way you grip the golf golf club is very similar to uh, the way you grip a handgun your eye focus has to be on the back of the ball through the contact of the club if you let your eye go forward of the ball going down range it's no telling where it's going to go but if you keep your eye focus you know so these are all things, your, your balance and your, your actually um, mm -hmm. the, the, the body physiology, the mindset, all this stuff is, is directly uh, paralleled. So um, we, we talk about, uh, you know, eye-hand coordination. Uh, I've had major league baseball pitchers that, that uh, wanted to, shoot better uh one in particular uh, that um I, I he was a real hot shot for the the uh the socks for a while and uh, he was a right-handed pitcher with his left eye dominant and uh i'm like 
So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at what you want to hit with the gun. And I want you to envision taking your hand and just pointing the gun right where you're looking. And it, it, it was like amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And to get to him, I had to tell him, I said, look, uh, make believe I am your pitching coach because I'm your shooting coach. And all of a sudden, I broke through that, uh, you can't talk to me, or I can't hear you, or, you know, whatever. So uh, the, the the words that you use and, and the associations, uh, one of my absolute best ones is calling the trigger the gas pedal of the gun. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give the analogy of, okay, so you've got your you know, depending on who I'm talking to, but let's say you've got your 700 horsepower, you name it, all right? Mm -hmm. So you pull up to a four-way stop sign and you look left and right and oh my goodness, right there to the right is the po-po and the po-po is looking at you real hard. So when you, as he motions you to cross the intersection in front of him, when you manipulate the gas pedal, do you just nail it and leave black rubber all the way across? Or do you operate that gas pedal with a smooth fluid motion in order to accelerate on out of the eyes of the popo? All right. So smooth fluid movement of the trigger is the critical thing. And if you accelerate and decelerate, you can use the brake pedals the same way. You know, how do you use the brake pedal? How do you use the gas pedal? That's how you operate the trigger. And in both directions, you control the trigger in both directions. So that, I mean, everybody that, with, I say everybody, 98% of the people that I've taught, you know, have been able to drive a car. So they understand how to operate the, the gas pedal. They understand how to operate the brake. And if they now understand the smooth fluid movement of operating the trigger in the same manner, it's just, you know, I don't, I don't have to teach them a thing. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I do get some pushback with some of the guys. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'll just put a name with it. Todd Jarrett and I. We're good friends, and uh, he he uh, contends that you should never control the trigger after the gun fires back forward. And he's right for somebody at his level. Problem is, is that most of the people that I run into are nowhere near his level. So they need to control the trigger in in both directions. And I have something that um, I came up with. And again, I I hesitate to say I came up with it because other people have done it. But I call it the reset drill. And and basically, you know, you shoot the shot and as the muzzle lifts, you, you reset the trigger. And then as the muzzle settles back to the original location, you're already applying pressure to the trigger so that when the gun comes back to the original location, discharge mm-hmm. can take place. And that's the most efficient, quickest way to fire multiple shots um, 
you know, and as, as long as you can be consistent and smooth with it, you can shoot as fast as you can operate the trigger. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's just another one of those, one of those little, little simple things that makes sense. It's really not arguable. So anyhow, so ask me some questions. I'm, I'm just rambling on here. So. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it very much. And I was looking back through my notes here. Um, one thing I do want to get into uh, from reading your bio okay. was that you were involved in numerous government firearms purchase testing and contracts yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, I, and I'm reminded of a, of a story, and you and I talked about this before we started recording. Yeah. Uh, a major PD here in Georgia was was testing for new firearms. And the recoil spring assembly on one of the firearms that was provided for them for this test broke. Yep. A representative from the company told me what happened. Yeah. Who was there as part of the test? He's like, Yeah, our recoil spring broke in the middle of the test. We knew we were done at that point. Yep. Everything that, that the other company was going to get the contract. I have heard so many stories about what happened that thing that the pistol blew up, the slide blew off, all this kind of stuff. It was the recall spring broke. Mm -hmm. um, I would really love to hear, you know, from your experience, what goes into testing. Because we, we, we read on the internet and all this stuff about, you know, the big army is testing to pick a new pistol or the yeah. FBI is doing to, what actually happens during all that testing and what goes on during the procurement processes. Yeah. Um, so the, the um, procurement is, it, just like you know buying shoes or chain mm -hmm. or whatever you know they put out an rfp a request for a proposal then mm -hmm. uh, anybody that wants to bid on it uh sends in um the the appropriate paperwork and i mean it's a long mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and, and i'm you know um uh, to be perfectly candid uh when we'd get an rfp i had other people to that would take care of that and I, you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't interested. Um, I also had people that would prepare the guns, and um, what that meant is uh, take the guns that we were going to send, and uh, make sure that all the screws were tight, and you know, uh, you know, look at the dang things. Now, I mean, you'd be surprised. Um, people send guns, and and, and let, let's just—I I won't name names and all this but mm -hmm. i am aware let's put it this way i am aware of guns that were sent to a particular place that had been bought and paid for that they told them that each gun was fired and so on and so forth and all this guns didn't even have lands and grooves in the barrel Gun, guns the triggers wouldn't work they, they, these were yeah. double action single action guns and you could cock the hammer and it would fall back forward again you know mm -hmm. uh, guns with no sights on them or guns that the sights were loose in the dovetail and just fell out yeah. and these are different brands i mean they, you know i you know, uh, I, you know i'm not going to pin yeah. the tail on any one donkey but you know yeah. the, the the bottom line is is if you are that stupid to send junk out the door you don't mm -hmm. deserve the contract right so so basically 
what happens is the the agency, whoever it may be, says we want, let's say, twenty five guns, and you'll send them twenty five guns, and then they will select maybe five, and they'll uh, throw them in the pond or run over them with a the truck or you know do whatever they you know it, it just mm -hmm. it, some of the stuff you just can't imagine but you know they you, they got to do this one agency would take a gun and put it up sideways and shoot the gun i mean shoot at the gun and have a, have the bullet hit the side of the gun to see if it would disable the gun and then they would turn it over <laughs> You know, I, I guess that has some merit. I, I, it's probably yeah. happened somewhere along the line, but I mean, you know, yeah. you got to look at likelihoods and all that. But anyhow, yeah. um, so then they would take um, uh, maybe five more guns and they'd shoot them, or they take them apart and put them back together. Or they do whatever they're going to mm -hmm. do. And then uh, I show up, and I, you know, I I have a, a well basically a team of people that I hire. They're not company employees, um, usually. And um, we have a, a protocol to shoot. And um, the, I guess probably the first one I did was um, when we, we put the 228 in the federal service and we went to, uh, to Quantico and we had to shoot 5,000 rounds through five different guns. Uh, so that's a total of 25,000 rounds. And um, we had, I believe it was three days to do it. And, you know, it was just load them and shoot them and load them and shoot them and load them and shoot them. You could clean them every 500 rounds. And each time the guns were, were uh, cleaned, uh, they had uh, uh, agency and they were the FBI uh, gun vault people. Oh that would uh, take the gun and inspect it and measure it and, you know, do, you know, make it look like they knew what they were doing anyway. And um, the, um, that, that was the, the first thing we did. We had one, one failure and uh, we fired 50,000 rounds of ammunition. So it must've been 10,000 instead of 5,000. Uh, anyhow, we had one failure and the gun failed to lock back uh, after uh, the last shot was fired one time. And uh, I think the shooter had his thumb on the finger, uh, thumb on the, the uh, oh. slide stop. But, um, you know, anyhow, that was the only failure. And, um, you know, we, we had observers there, you know, multiple observers from multiple agencies because this was going to be a multiple agency purchase. So we had, you know, like U.S. Marshals and DEA and you know, DCIS and all kinds of all kinds of people. Yeah. You know, so um, those those tests uh, are individual. You know, protocols. They want you to be able to uh, shoot this amount of rounds. Uh, they may mm -hmm. measure accuracy. Uh, one of the tests that I did. Uh, this was for DEA at, uh, at again at Quantico. Um, they uh, wanted after I believe it was. 10 or 15,000 rounds, they wanted to make sure that the point of impact on the gun hadn't changed. So we had to shoot groups to start and groups in various places. So you have all these different protocols. Uh, mm -hmm. you did the federal air marshals. All they wanted to do is to shoot 
20,000 rounds through, I think it was five different guns as quickly as we could get them through there. And, uh, you know, to see would, would the gun stand 20,000 rounds? I, and these were 229, 357 SIGs. And I think we lost um, maybe one or two extractors, which was like, you know, uh, no big deal. Um, when we did the DHS test, that was in 2004, uh, that was a huge, huge contract. And we had multiple guns, multiple calibers, um, just just all kinds of stuff. And um, we, uh, we were kind of behind the power curve because the H&K people pretty well had this one in the bag. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when you went to uh, the uh, unit chief's office, he had uh, H&K paraphernalia all over the place. You know, it, was, it was just like, you, so, so obvious, it was like, why bother, you know? And, you know, I, I've been used to being hard-headed, um, maybe stubborn a little, but um, I'm like, screw these people. We'll go down there and we'll beat their ass. And we did. So uh, they gave me um, the responsibility of putting together the teams. I put together three test teams. Uh, we, we went to Altoona, Pennsylvania. Um, I think we were there only three weeks. We had six weeks to do it. We did it in half the time. But um, I dressed everybody in the same shirt, the same pants, the same shoes. I had uh, uh, two women um, that shot. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the, the interesting thing on the two women, the only two guns that broke were in the hands uh, of the women. The one woman uh, well, one was my wife. She weighed about 110 pounds with two pockets full of bullets. So she was a little bit of a thing, uh, broke a locking insert. And the other woman um, was a, 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 how would I put this? She was a large, robust woman. She came out of a, a police agency uh, mm -hmm. where she liked to go out and go on the street and kick the bad guy's asses. And she could do it. So she, she, she was, you know, the opposite of the, the, the little girl, both those, both those ladies, uh, broke parts on the, on the guns and nobody else, none of the guys broke any parts on the guns. Mm -hmm. So when we went, um, at, and, and again, um, we had a specific protocol to go through. Uh, we had, uh, inspectors watching us 100% of the time from the time we drove on the property and, and, I, I ran it like a military operation. We had two vans and both vans were full of people. And when we got there, we parked the vans, we got out. Everybody had a place to be and a place to go. Uh, I kind of was the, uh, the, the, I guess I was the team leader. And, you know, I, I interfaced with the, the government people and, um, you know, they brought the ammunition, we shot the ammunition and, you know, we policed up the brass and cleaned the guns and did all the stuff. And, you know, um, they, they were totally impressed because none of the other teams had that kind of organization, uh -huh. A. None of the other teams had guns that would last the way ours did, B. Uh, and um, at the, uh, at, at the uh, uh, what am I trying to say? When they, we're going to tell us that we got the contract or whatever. The first thing that says you guys kicked ass never before we've seen anything so organized, 
so efficient uh, and so smooth. And uh, so we got the contract. Um, so a, a lot of it is, honestly, is professionalism. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I had a military background. I have a little bit of bearing and poise and, you know, I know how to relate to people and mm -hmm. I can schmooze pretty good too, if I need to. But, uh, you know, yeah. one of the things that uh, I was always known for was, uh, was my honesty and integrity. Sure. You know, I wouldn't lie to them. And, you know, if, mm -hmm. if we screwed up or something was screwed up, hey, you know, yeah. uh, there you go. So, yeah, you know, that uh, one thing we maybe we can impart to the audience is that initial RFP can often shape the entire uh, procurement procedure. Because, like, say, if I'm doing it for a pistol and I write in the RFP that the pistol must have double strike capability, well, then I've just eliminated all the striker fire guns. Well, so also like, all of them. yeah, most, yeah, you know, pretty much, yeah. So we're we're back to a double single or a double action only or yep. a single action only hammer fire gun at that point. Yep. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, I know that. Not gun related. I wrote an RFP in, in a previous existence for digital signs to put along the side of the highways with information on them. Right. And I wanted a particular sign, and so I was talking to the guy from that company. And I said, tell me something technologically wise that is in your size that none of your competitors. Sure. Yeah. No, and no. I just wrote that it had. Yeah. Yep. I wrote that the science had to have that piece of technology. In it. Sure. 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 Yeah. So, yeah, that's 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 done all the time as well. Um, and and you know, then you got protests, you know, I mean, when you got a multi-bazillion dollar thing, you know, like the, the military contract, you know, Glock protest mm -hmm. and all that. But. You know, most yeah. of the time these things are, you know, it, it, they, they are pretty well decided and, you know, uh, right. beforehand. Uh, yeah. I will tell you another quick little story on, on RFPs, uh, the M11 in the U.S. military. Are you familiar with that? Yes, sir. All right. Okay. So the sales manager came in, uh, came into my office one day. Uh, is, this was May of 1990, actually. And he throws a letter down on my desk and he says, yeah, you, you're an army guy. See if you want to do anything with this and turns around and walks off. So there was, uh, uh, it wasn't really an RFP. There was kind of a sourcing letter mm -hmm. uh, for a compact combat pistol. And um, uh, it, it came out of Fort McClellan, Alabama. And uh, there was a guy named Staff Sergeant Schiff, which made no sense to me whatsoever, because the Staff Sergeant, you know, is, you know, that, that's that's a little above his pay grade. Mm -hmm. uh, anyhow, um, so anyhow, I called this guy up and I said, uh, "So I, I see you guys want a, a two two five. and uh, he says, "Yep, that's right." And he says, uh, "Can can you can you come and demonstrate one?" I said, "Well." Yes, I can, but let me let me tell you something first. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm intimately familiar with the Beretta 92, and I know that Beretta makes a single stack nine millimeter that's you know of, of that same type, and there's lots of parts in, in uh, compatibility, and they make a double stack 
that um, you know it's a 13 round magazine capacity and so mm-hmm. you know, it's a compact gun which would actually be a better choice so you know wouldn't you be better off um, you know going with the Beretta and there was this long silence and he says what you don't understand is we don't want no GD Beretta <laughs> and like, all right I read you loud and clear you know yeah. and I, I said uh, so what about a 228 he says what you don't understand you know <laughs> okay yes sir so i i it was sometime in june i forget mm-hmm. uh the date but back into june uh i arranged to go down to fort benning and you know i'd pushed troops at benning and i'd been mm-hmm. all over benning and I, the place that they had me go uh, was a place i'd never seen or heard of before no lights, no water, no nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a, a wooden shack with uh, wooden field tables and folding chairs out in the middle of an impact area. And I'm like, okay. So before I went, there was another point of contact there. And and I told the guy, um, you know, I was, you know, getting my bearings as to, you know, when I was going to fly in and all that kind of good stuff. And I said, let me, let me just try this one more time. I said, you know, I know you guys want the 225, and I said the 228 is actually the same size gun. It's got uh, a few more rounds, five more rounds of, of magazine capacity. The magazine catch is reversible on that particular gun. Uh, you know, it's it's just a better gun. It's got a better trigger than the 225. And he says, "Well, I'll tell you what." He says, I'm going to schedule you for 11 o'clock and you've got from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock to do everything you need to do with the 225. And you've got from 12 o'clock to one o'clock. If anybody wants to forego lunch and listen to you, um, you can talk about the 228. So long story short, we were in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have anything that we couldn't go get lunch. So I pretty well had a captive audience. And I showed these guys the 228. So probably six weeks later, I got a phone call. Can you come to Aberdeen and do a demo with the 228? I'm like, sure. When do you want me there? They said, how about tomorrow? (laughs) Like, uh, 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 you know, I'll, I'll see. So anyhow, I went down to Aberdeen and I met George Newenhouse, who was the guy that did the uh, the M9, um, you know, and, and in fact, I got to see all the test weapons that they had, the Berettas and the Smiths and the, the uh, SIGs, of course, and all that, you know. But um, so I did a, a presentation to all the guys uh, uh, at the armor shop there. And then I went back again And this was the strangest situation. There was a lady there who was a contracting officer. And I I was there. I took the gun completely apart. Any questions that were asked had to be asked to her by the audience. Now, I had bird colonels and people in civilian clothes and master sergeants and all kinds of stuff like that. And I couldn't talk to them. I had to talk to her and then she would turn around. It's like we were speaking foreign languages and we we're all speaking English. Uh-huh. I never did figure out the, the, the reason for that. But at any rate, uh, then they uh, they wanted five guns to be sent. Or actually, it was 15 and they were going to shoot five. So they shot 
the guns on their own and they didn't have any problems, you know, with, you know, just line soldiers. So um, then we got into how much are, are you going to sell these to us and, you know, and all this kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, then we had to build a special place for the ammunition, the military ammunition. We had to have a special place for inspectors to come in. And I mean, it, it, it's <laughs> long and involved and, and a lot of unnecessary yeah. stuff. That, yep. that goes on, but uh, that's how the M11 came into in, into existence. So, just yeah, just just odds and ends. Um, I can yeah. tell you about the Sig rifles that we tested, and you know, did, you know, we shoot the guns until they were so hot you couldn't hold them, and we'd dip them in a five-gallon bucket of water, and the steam would just fly. Mm -hmm. We'd crank them back up again, and you know, off we go. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny how you, you, it runs the whole gamut of sometimes it's a pure scientific process and everything else is we're going to select the best one based on this testing protocol. And then other times it comes down to whose personality is driving the whole train. Yeah, absolutely. And then sometimes it comes down to cost per unit. Yeah. Well, we want this gun, but we have to buy X number of units of them and we can get this gun over here. And it's ten dollars less per unit or twenty dollars less per unit. Okay, well, if you're buying ten guns, that might not be a big deal. If you're buying a hundred thousand guns, yeah, that's a big deal, and that may pay into the decision making factor as well. Now, let me give you a real good one. Uh, sure. The uh, federal air marshals. Mm -hmm. So right after nine eleven, I you know I I was the the, the point man at. Uh, going down to federal air marshal headquarters and and um i let's let's put it this way i know a little bit of something about aviation and airplane construction and this kind of stuff and um the guy in charge was a former secret service and at that point in time the secret service had 229 357s and wow. uh, I suggested that probably the nine millimeters, the, the fam, they had 50 fams at that point in time. They all carried two two fives. And um, I suggested that maybe an upgrade to a two two eight or two two nine nine millimeter would probably be a, a, a very good way of doing things. Now this guy was a former Marine Lieutenant Colonel. Um, and he absolutely, I mean, it was like, there will be no nine millimeters in my services. <laughs> like, okay, I, I, I got you covered. Yes, yeah. sir. So, so now uh, we were we were looking at the uh, federal flight deck officer program, mm -hmm. and you know, would it make sense to you, maybe you know that that the guys driving the, the the plane had the same gun and same ammunition and same stuff as the guys back behind the the bulkhead you know keeping mm -hmm. the natives at bay yeah oh hell no 40 <laughs> caliber 40 caliber h and k that's you know and that was pure personality out of federal mm -hmm. law enforcement training center that was all that was and i you know um and you know we 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 talked about you know penetrative capabilities of this that and the other and uh, mm -hmm. you know everybody had his mind made up and I'm, I'm like you know I I did some 
some demonstrations on you know shooting through bulkheads behind the you know the, the crew cabin or the, the cockpit mm -hmm. like that yeah. uh, you know they got this armored door but they got nothing but particle board on either side of the door and if yeah. the guys in the back start shooting towards the front there's nothing to stop the bullets but that particle board mm -hmm. between the brain bucket of the guy driving the ship you know the, the guy in the left seat and the guy in the right yeah. seat you know the, the first officer um they had no protection at all there was no you know i mean the, the in in most aircraft you know the various differences but uh you know you had the galley on one side uh which had a little bit more metal in it than mm -hmm. the, uh the uh, uh facility uh toilet facility on the other um uh, but you know didn't want to hear that yeah. uh what what interesting and i'm like well and I know a little bit about hydraulics and airplanes, you know, and you've got redundant systems and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, but you definitely don't want to shoot through the floor. You'd rather shoot through the wall than you would the floor. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, like, why wouldn't we use some sort of frangible ammunition, you know, something that um, was a, a little kinder to the uh, interior of the, the airplane? Mm. Nobody wanted to hear any of that at all. So I'm like, hey. You know, I, it, it, one of my, my, my deals when I'd always go to customers is mm -hmm. simple. I'd tell them what I thought they needed, and then they would tell me what they wanted. And I would tell the salespeople, this is what they want, sell it to them. Yep. I, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't walk in their shoes, even though I may be a little smarter in ballistics or guns or whatever mm -hmm. else than, than they, they, they know what they want. Yep. And by golly, you know, uh, we'll we'll take care of you. And the other yep. part of it is, is um, once they realize they're wrong, they may come back and buy what you wanted them to have in the first place. Yep. So if they realize they're wrong, well, that's happens. That's that's happens sometimes. You know, yeah. and, and, uh, people, you know, egos get in the way sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they're man enough to say, you know what, uh, we we think yeah. we're going in a different direction. So. There we are. Yeah. We've been talking for two hours almost. <laughs> Getting close to it. Getting close to it. Is there anything you would like to talk about that I did not ask you about? Oh, uh, we could probably talk another two hours, and, and maybe okay. maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll do another episode. Get get online some other time and and talk. Sure. You know, my my whole interest in, in life at this point in time is uh, doing mm -hmm. something that'll help people. Uh, sure. Shorten the learning curve and do stuff that makes sense. And, and if it's safe and socially acceptable, I'm all for it. Sure. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, uh, it, how can people get in touch with me? Probably go on my my website and uh, and and go in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, I it, just the the reason I'm hedging a little bit is sure. I am I've retired three times, <laughs> and I'm desperately trying to make it number four. Sure. And um, unless I'm in listening to Spalding the other day, you know he's talking, sure. you know he he's not completely out of it, um, 
I do some selected things for, you know, people I've worked with for years and years and years. Uh, I don't need or want any business. Um, sure. I, I'm always happy to help somebody. Um, but um, to, to be real honest with you, I, 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 uh, I just soon not teach any more classes and, and you okay. know, the, the legal work. Uh, that's all fun. It's very lucrative, but mm -hmm. you know, I don't, uh, I don't solicit it, you know. And I, to be honest with you, uh, if somebody wanted to talk to me about, uh, uh, let's say you're going to retire one day, and then you're mm -hmm. going to be looking around like, what am I going to do? And you know, you you may have your your uh, your business, but you know there are other things that you can do, and then you mm -hmm. you get into how much do I need to charge? And the answer to the question is you charge more and more and more until your business drops off and then you realize what you're worth. Yeah. And if I told you what I charged per hour, you would like, holy cow, I can't believe this. So, you know, um, I, I, I'm a little greedy sometimes. I, you know, sometimes <laughs> I can't turn these things down, but, uh, you know, so people want to get a hold of me, uh, you know, phone number and, uh, and email address is, is on the website, uh, International Firearms Consultants, LLC. Uh, don't, don't expect something to come right back instantly. You know, I, I look at the computer uh, every couple of days. Um, I have a, a, a range in the backyard that I like to get on and use. I've got a full steel range. I've got 250 yards for long range stuff. Um, I've got shotgun patterning boards. I've got mm -hmm. all kinds of really cool stuff that I haven't been able to use. And now I'm gonna wear it out. So that's 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 pretty much the deal. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing I guess I'd be remiss in uh, not, not discussing, uh, I do have a, a presence with the uh, USCCA, United States Concealed Carry Association, and um, I, uh, I've got a book that'll be out uh, probably in, in less than a month that uh, can be picked up through USCCA, um, and it's it's basic, um, basically nothing but marksmanship diagnostics. You know, the the brain, the eye, the uh, the various things it's you know you can take it wherever you want to go but mm -hmm. it's it's mostly uh what we've talked about you know in the past couple of hours so sure. you know i i don't I mean, they paid me a flat fee for it i don't get any money i don't care you mm -hmm. know i think it's a pretty good piece of work uh it's not perfect uh we'll uh we'll write it again you know in another couple of years if i'm still interested and able and uh there we go so all right look i appreciate the uh the opportunity it's always a pleasure to you know to uh have an opportunity to connect with the rest of the world and uh, i'm truly uh blessed my whole life has been blessed and uh, i'm glad that uh, i got to talk with you and we can thank john hearn okay. for all that so oh, well thank you and next time i see john i'm going to conduct an experiment i'm going to ball up pieces of paper and i'm gonna throw them at his nose to see if he can yeah. not avoid them yeah and i'm gonna dare him that he can't move yeah yeah and you know he's the, he's the guy you know that's he, right 
he's, he's the guy that, that would uh, validate that. So, uh, he, and he'll have to do it in the name of science. Of course. Of course. Well, I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, that was one of the things when I read read about him that, you know, that uh, uh, attracted me to give him a call. Uh, you know, he was from Virginia, so that was that yeah. was one strike against him right there. And then when I saw some of the stuff and some of his teaching methodologies and mm -hmm. and uh, that kind of stuff, I understand he carries, you know, all kinds of, you know, like a trailer, or a truck full of, <laughs> full of stuff. He'll eventually learn that that's not necessary and you know i i told him when i was talking with him the other day my oldest son's the same age as he is you know and, and he was a slow learner too uh but <laughs> anyhow <laughs> oh that was that that tickles me that, uh, well, that absolutely yeah. tickles me well you know I, I used to be i can really resonate with you know i i i used to carry i mean i was like the, uh, Pots and pans salesman, you know, mm -hmm. across the prairie out west. You know, I had every yeah. possible known demand. Yeah. You're like, wait a minute, we don't need this. And uh, you know, I one instance that I had, I had this this agency, and we got out, we were in Florida and we were out in the middle of nowhere, like 30 miles from the station. And I said, Who brought the targets? And everybody's like, Who 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 was supposed to bring the targets? They didn't have any freaking targets. Yeah. We, I said, has anybody got garbage bags? Well, lo and behold, somebody had garbage bags. So we, yeah. rather than drive 30 miles back to get the targets, we um, hung garbage bags and we did bullet hole drills and that kind of stuff on the garbage bags. And we had some really meaningful mm -hmm. training. They were like flabbergasted. So, you know, you, you, hey, you know, field expedience, it all works. You know, years ago, John and I went to a Spalding class, and Tom Givens went with us. Sure. And uh, uh, Tom Givens went with us. Yeah. And um, really good uh, guy, by the way. Think think very highly of him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I I paid attention to how Spalding travels to his classes, and John didn't because mm -hmm. John has that pickup trip full of things, and I fly to classes now with a thumb drive. Right. Right. Uh, I mean. When 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 I uh, I I do some classes out west, you know, for some of my selected friends and that kind of stuff, you know, same thing. Thumb drive. I carry a handgun and uh, mm -hmm. you know some some ammunition because you know I may need to shoot something, you know, and right. you know, but usually it's a two two six and fifty rounds of ammo, and that's you know that's yeah. that's not unless I'm doing a rifle class or something like that. So, but uh, yeah, thumb drives, you know. I'm I'm basically lazy, so you know I, I tell people all the time. You know I use my brain to save my ass and and uh, yeah. my back or you know whatever, and uh, you know. So anyhow, all right. Well, we could go on forever. And, sure. And uh, you know, listen. I mean, I'm willing to do it if you're willing to have me. We'll we'll do it some other time. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you absolutely you want to do a. You know, round robin with, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether you do that or not, or whether you could even control sure. it or not. But if you had you and me and and Spalding and and Hearn and maybe Givens, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, it'd be like running a three ring circus. But uh, <laughs> you know, I I'd certainly be open for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah. we'll get we'll get that underway. Yep. One thing I do, I you know, I, I keep saying one thing. Sure. I'll tell all my instructors 
and, and this is a serious thing I'll leave you with. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I did this 20 years ago uh, for a specific reason. I won't get into all that, but it, it's like you're always on stage. As an instructor, people look up to you. Mm -hmm. People look to you for information. People look to you for guidance. People look at how you dress, how you act, the words you use. So act like it because you're always on stage, whether you know it. Mm -hmm. And I try to live that. I'm not always perfect with it, but I, I really try to live that. Uh, and I yeah. encourage all the instructors because, you know, I, I, like others, have had people call me up and said, you know, you saved my life, what you did what yeah. you said and you you never know and you never know which yeah. ones you know, you know that you you'll never hear from but uh -huh. you're always on stage all right with that uh thanks a lot for having me and um let's do it again that's fine sir sir well thank you for for joining us tonight and to the audience we know that your most important asset is your time thank you for choosing to spend it with us <laughs>